but I think there's been this fear that exercise is somehow going to be dangerous. Uh, and it's quite the contrary. After that first day, when you, they say you have cancer, there's a new person born. You know, there's this thing called new normal. I, th I think they don't really maybe understand how much it's going to help them. Each patient and each survivor is going to be experiencing different side effects, different experiences. The positive is that it's, it's never too late. Welcome to the REACH podcast, where you'll hear from researchers, doctors and patients themselves on how exercise, nutrition and lifestyle behaviors can reduce cancer risk and improve survivorship. I'm your host, Kieran Fairman. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode 5 of the REACH podcast. In today's show I'm chatting to Matt Lampson, who is a professional soccer player in the MLS for the Chicago Fire. Matt was diagnosed with stage 4 Hodgkin's lymphoma just a week after graduating high school. And instead of going on to play college soccer and kind of pursue his dreams, he, he had to stay in town and, and continue treatment. And really took a big hit, both physically and, and psychologically, from the treatment. And you'll, you'll kind of get a taste for that in the interview. Matt is one of the strongest guys you'll ever meet. The dude is just tough as nails and uh, just a, a complete straight shooter. And I'll have to preface and kind of warn you, there, there are a couple of curse words from Matt in there. Um, I thought about editing them, but I think they're really, uh, they, that's his personality and that's what he's about. So I, I, I left them in there and uh, just, you know, word of caution, you, you may hear a few S words in there. I've known Lamps for a while and we're pretty close and I think you can tell that from the more laid back style of interview where we really just had a great chat about what he went through and, and everything he's kind of done since. We had such a good chat that I actually had to break up the interview into two parts because we did talk a great deal, you know, in the first part and what you hear today about just what he went through in terms of treatment and particularly the psychological effect it had. If you, you know, about 20 minutes in, you hear him talk about the idea of feeling like he was losing his friends and just the hurt he was going through mentally in response to the treatment and I really appreciate Matt's honesty and his ability to be vulnerable about that type of thing because it's it's not easy to talk about and you can tell he's still struggling with it to this day so it was great to hear his story and just to see how much he's bounced back from where he was at that time and and to see him doing so well now is just phenomenal so the first part and, and today's show as I said is just about what he went through how how he dealt with the diagnosis and and how he moved on through treatment and recovery up until he started at Ohio State uh, playing soccer. The second part of the show, which I'll release in a few weeks, will be talking about moving on from Ohio State into a professional setting, kind of how he's still dealing with some late effects of, of treatment, which is a really important thing because a lot of people don't realize how long the side effects of treatment last. Matt is a 10-year, almost a 10-year cancer survivor and still dealing with a lot of side effects from treatment. So that's a really interesting episode as well that I'll get out. But I think you'll really enjoy today's show. And Matt does a ton of work. He has his own foundation called the Lampstrong Foundation. He does a ton of work with childhood cancer survivors. It's just a really great organization. And he's so passionate about what he does. So if you're, if you're interested in getting in touch with Matt, you can visit his website, Lampstrong, L-A-M-P-S-T-R-O-N-G.com. Or you can find Lamps on Twitter, Matt Lampson, and he'll come up on Twitter. And you can find me on Twitter as well, Kieran Fairman is my handle. Or you can go to our website, reachbeyondcancer.com, and you can follow me on various media sites there. So thanks again for tuning in, folks. I hope you enjoy the show, and I think you'll, you'll get a load out of it, and we'll, uh, we'll get to the interview. Enjoy. Okay, dude, so, you know, I, I know your story, and the reason I drove six hours up here to see you <laughs> is, is to hear, to get other people to hear your story, because yep. it's an incredible one. Right now, you're playing for Chicago Fire in Major League Soccer, but there was a point where your your soccer career and your life was, was in jeopardy, so... Absolutely. Let's go back to that point. Mm -hmm. um, 07, was it? I was diagnosed in 07. Uh, we had, I was a high school senior. And we had a blood drive, just a standard American Red Cross blood drive that the 18 and up could donate. So I go in to donate, and uh, they do a little like blood prick to test your, test your hemoglobin, and mine was not working. Like it wasn't wasn't acceptable at that time. I was like, "What the hell is this? I have no clue what hemoglobin is." Um, and they tested it again, same thing, and they were like, "Oh well." Uh, 
we can't have you donate because your hemoglobin's too low. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, I just wanted the cookies. <laughs> you know? um, so I go home that day and I tell my dad, my dad's a physician. I'm like, pops, I tried to give don- uh, blood today, but they didn't let me. They said my hemoglobin was too low. And he goes, what? That's, that's not good. And coincidentally, at the same time, I had a huge node on the side of my neck that I had noticed maybe a month before and morbidly, I would like joke. I would, I mean, this thing was prominent and I would joke. I would say, look at the cancer in my neck. (laughs) (laughs) That's karma for you. But, uh, (laughs) so, so at the, at the time I tell my dad, I'm like, but I've got this huge thing on my neck. I should probably just, he's like, yeah, we need to take you to the doctor to make sure. Uh, I mean, obviously swollen lymph nodes can just be sickness, you know, and anemia, same thing. Maybe it's just pneumonia or something like that, that you are just living with. And, uh, so he went in, was on antibiotics for about two weeks. Um, and nothing changed. So still anemic, um, still gigantic node on the side of my neck. And at that point, uh, my father was like, we need to have that biopsied. So I think the next week I went in to get it biopsied. Uh, the whole time I'm just like, this is, this is all just precautionary. Like, I wonder what, I wonder what it is. Um, and so I, I get the biopsy. Um, and after that, I'm, I'm just kind of, I forget about it. Like a thing gets taken out of my neck and I'm just forget about it. And then like a week and a half later, uh, I remember this vividly. I'm just sitting at the family computer. I turn around cause my dad's in the room and I go, Oh, whatever happened to that test? And he goes, Matt, we got to talk about that. So I'm like, Oh, what is this? And so he, he tells me, he goes, Matt, you, you have cancer. You have what's called the Hodgkin's lymphoma. And as I said, this is something that I remember vividly. I just, my first reaction, I said, well, what do I have to do to beat it? And that's type, that's the type of reaction and, and mindset that basically got me where I am now is, uh, just positivity in terms of, of the outcome. And from what I've heard, a lot of people say, um, just as important as the treatment itself, the power of positive thinking, I don't know if it's like a metaphysical thing or whatever, but uh, from what I've heard, it makes a genuine difference from how your body reacts to, to treatment and fights off the cancer. So uh, just just thinking every single uh, chemotherapy session, radiation session, I would literally visualize these tumors just melting away. And I and after two rounds of radiation or uh, two rounds of chemotherapy, I was cancer free. So it had to have worked. They don't, they don't use the chemotherapy that I got anymore because it's far too toxic. And now they have, obviously, immunotherapy is a lot better uh, targeting and less uh, harsh. Your, your story is unique in that everyone I've spoke to as a cancer patient or survivor has been told by their physician. And they've had people in the room and all that type of stuff. What was it like to be 18 sitting on the computer and turn around and, and have your dad? tell you like I said it was it was gut-wrenching like my heart just sank and I didn't it didn't hit me for about a week and then I remember probably seven days from diagnosis I was laying in bed before I like just about to fall asleep and I just started bawling man I I just started bawling like it it was kind of like the why me moment and uh, I just was so I mean, at that time, my, my diagnosis was stage 4B Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is like organ and tissue involvement. It, I mean, I had tumors the size of softballs all through my mediastinal area. So uh, it had spread into my lungs, pancreas, and bone marrows in my shoulder. So it, was, it wasn't good. I probably, at this point, uh, actually my, my oncologist recently, he had never told me the odds before this. They had always said, like, your type of chemotherapy with this uh, – with this chemotherapy and your uh, type of cancer, the survival rate's really good. It's uh, 80-90% now. What he didn't tell me was at stage 4B and how advanced mine was, 
uh, he told me very recently, uh, and I am almost 10 years out of chemotherapy, um, that I was like 50-50. And if I had waited, like if I hadn't caught this for another month, it, I probably would have just dropped dead somewhere, you know. And uh, so I, I got lucky. I got lucky for when I caught it. But um, it was just the why me moment. And just that was the only time that I ever had a fear of death, a fear of dying is just that night I was just, what if, just what if, you know? And um, after that, I woke up the next morning just ready to go and went into chemotherapy and, and started kicking ass. So were you, were you in season or were you off season for soccer at this time? Uh, at that time, so now it's different because they have like the academies and stuff. But back then, the men um, would, in the fall, they would play high school soccer for their high school team. And then the spring, summer would be club. So I was getting ready to go. I was like mid, mid club, actually. I was mid club. Uh, at that time, we had just won states. We had won the state cup. And we were going to regionals. So um, I remember going to regionals because I found out like that Monday. I remember going to regionals the following weekend playing and then starting chemotherapy the next Monday. So my my doctors let me play soccer that weekend. Um, Did you at least win regionals? Uh, we actually, that was like the best we ever done. We I think we made it to the finals or something like that. I was playing lights out. I played... Uh, Will Bruin, who's now in the MLS and he plays in Seattle, I'll play him this weekend actually. Very cool. So, um, what was that like for you playing regionals, knowing dude, you know your diagnosis? It was it was crazy because I knew I had nothing to lose. Like I, this was one of my last chances to play the game that I loved, and um, and I was just playing free. It was awesome. It was an awesome feeling. Um, and then afterward, I was like, well, <laughs> all right, now I got now I got to focus on something else. But what's what's another crazy thing is like I, I had gotten the bi biopsy like on a Monday and I went to visit my college visit with my mom that I think it might have been that week. And I noticed something weird like uh, we stopped at Outback Steakhouse on the way. Fine establishment. <laughs> and um, and we were eating and she was not eating anything. And I was like, well, what's your what's your deal? Why aren't you eating? And she goes, Nothing. Like she wasn't speaking the entire trip. This is a, I mean, this is a, a college visit that I'm going to. And so we get back and I found out that she had already known, but they did. My parents didn't want to tell me because they wanted me to have the experience of going on a college visit without, and they fully well knew that I wasn't going to be going to college that year from their perspective to know that their child has cancer. We can't tell him right now. We don't want to tell him right now. So he has an experience that most kids have. Uh, that's pretty surreal to even think about. But um, so, at what point did you did you make the decision to? Because you were going to go to Northern Illinois yep. to play. Um, and so this was spring. At what point did you make the decision? To say right, I'm staying in Ohio to. Well, that that was that was made for me. That was one that you're just you need to be treated you know and uh they knew at regionals because they were there scouting uh the coaching staff at niu was scouting and they knew um they knew that i wouldn't be there the next year so i just i just stayed i mean i was taking classes at columbus state during treatment online classes um, and actually sometimes i would go off campus to do classes and that actually really helped me because i ended up graduating in three years um, once I ended up going to college, um, from all the credits that I got during treatment, but obviously when you're immunocompromised, you can't be around a lot of people and that prevented me from, from going to full classes and things yeah. like that. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, it was, I tried to make the most of it. I'll put it that way. And the first round of chemotherapy, I got B-COP, which is, uh, bleomycin, etoposidendromycin, cytoxin, which they think they don't even use anymore because it's so toxic and it is it's one of the most brutal forms. yeah that 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 chemotherapy regimen is miserable absolutely miserable um so what was your what was your cycle like it was was it once a day so so the way that it would work I, whenever i explain it i kind of take it like one month is almost one cycle so uh when i went in on that monday uh, the first round, they don't know how you're going to react to it. So I was inpatient 
for five days. So I got chemotherapy just one day and it's basically you're getting it from 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. Because uh, it takes time. They can't just pump it all in at once. Your body is not going to be able to handle it. And uh, because of its toxicity, they constantly have you on a, uh, on a 24-hour IV drip to make sure that your kidneys don't fail. Um, so for five days, they were monitoring me, uh, making sure that I was doing well. Um, and and so like, say say you get chemotherapy on the first of the month. Uh, like I said, it's like an eight to nine hour day. And then for a week and a half, you're recovering. And then you come in on a Wednesday, basically the middle of the month, and you get, I think it was bleomycin um, on that Wednesday. And that only takes about an hour, but um, it's like a, it's literally a red IV drug um, that they have a push um, over like an hour. And first time I got that, uh, like it literally looks like red Kool-Aid. And obviously you're on IV drip because it's toxic. And so you're peeing all the time. The first time I peed after that, just straight red. And I was like, oh, <laughs> shit, what's going And they were like, no, that's absolutely normal. So you you basically, for BCOP, you only get chemotherapy two days out of the month. But it's, it's so toxic that you need all that time to recover. Yeah. Lucky for me, after that first round, um, my mother's a nurse, so she was able to do 24-hour IVs um, at home. And so after the first round, my second round, I would go in, get chemotherapy for eight hours, and I would be able to go home with an IV bag um, that she would be changing out and things. But um, it was it, I was lucky enough that a lot of people would have to do that inpatient. They would have to be there for over 24 hours almost every single round. And then, uh, I mean, there's so many, so many intricacies of the, of this chemotherapy that most people don't realize, like when you get these, uh, it kills everything, all your fast growing cells. So it's not just people think, oh, it just kills, uh, the chemotherapy, but it's killing all your fast growing cells. So your, your skin tissue, your fingernails, your hair, obviously that's what most people think of, um, and your blood cells, which is the number one thing that you need. Um, so that's why a lot of people, uh, when they get chemotherapy, they have the masks on because if, obviously if you have zero white blood cells, which I would get down to zero white blood cells, you get sick, just a normal sickness, turns into pneumonia and you die. Only you would paint that as straight edge. Yeah. <laughs> it almost happened to me. I, I, I remember distinctly like there was a time that I, I was ju I just got sick. And then within 24 hours, I couldn't breathe. And we had to go to the ER and things like that. But yeah, that's that will that's what will happen. So one of the things that happens when you go that far down in white blood cell count and red blood cell count is you need neupogen shots, which obviously, you know what that is, but it's uh, three thousand dollar shot that you get sub Q, and it stimulates your bone marrow to create white blood cells. And so the first time that I did it, um, I think it took like two or three shots, and my white blood cell count was like seventeen thousand. Which if you if a normal person had seventeen thousand, you're like you have leukemia, you know. <laughs> but obviously, it, it was a reason that I had it. Um, what these what this does now is back in the day they would have to wait months for the body to naturally recover the white blood cells but now you can do chemotherapy rounds once a month uh because you're synthetically refurbishing the body um but the problem with that was with each round of chemotherapy my body was responding less and less to the neupogen so by the third round of chemotherapy I was getting like six and seven shots, which is $3,000 a piece, you know, so this is not cheap um, to stimulate the, the, the bone marrow. And that was probably the worst pain I've ever had is, is your bone marrow working overtime to, to pump out these white blood cells. I remember I would have to go in and get morphine drips because it was so painful. Um, and it's like no pain that I've ever had in my life. Like you couldn't sit still without just writhing in pain. So um, that's, that's one of the things that people don't even realize that that type of thing happens. Um, my, I had sores all over my mouth, uh, ulcers all over my mouth because of 
just deteriorative tissue. Um, I had horribly sensitive teeth. Uh, I could drink lo- uh, room temperature water and it would be too cold. I, I wouldn't be able to do it. So um, just things like that that most people don't even realize. Um, and, uh, you know, losing your hair is a big thing. Um, for me, losing your eyebrows was even more so because people are bald all the time. But when you lose your eyebrows, nobody loses their eyebrows. You look freaky, you know. And I had uh, intestinal ulcers, too. Uh, There's a point that in my recovery uh, after chemotherapy, less than a year out of chemotherapy, I de- uh, developed like intestinal ulcers uh, just just from from treatment, you know. Um, and I lost like 40 pounds because I couldn't eat. And so I'm going from gaining 80 pounds to losing 40 pounds from not eating. It's just, uh, it's crazy was what it all did to my body. Um, but people just think, oh, the sickness and the, the things like that. Um, I know my hemoglobin got down to like a five, six, which is less than half of what it needs to be. Um, most men, my size and age are like a 15, um, and that's when I got blood transfusions and things like that. And that's a freaky feeling. It's, it, it feels like I'm just accepting uh, the strength of someone else. You went through the ringer mm-hmm. in terms of treatment. I've heard people talk about the different types of chemo and yeah. um, how, they, how they felt. Did you get a port or was it intravenous? Oh, yeah. you were, I, had had, uh, I had a port. I had it right in the, the, uh, the sternum. A lot of guys get it uh, subclavicle. Um, but what they did was they installed it in the sternum and then ran a line, uh, into the subclavicle, uh, for the constant blood supply. But actually one time it had to have happened during sleep or something. The port actually flipped. So I had to get surgery to flip it back. Um, it's like, I went in to get chemotherapy one day and they were just like poking me in the chest with the needles all the time trying to get in. And I was like, it's not working. There's something weird going on here. And then I went to fluoroscopy, and they were like, "Oh yeah, it's flipped. We got to we got to flip it back." So what were your? Uh, so you had this twice a month. What yep. was your side effects like? You know, say the day after versus two days after your infusion, and how did that fluctuate day to day during your chemo? Yeah. So the the full day of chemotherapy sucked. Uh, when I first got it the first time, I was just I was like, I feel great. This is awesome. <laughs> like you would. And I remember like. Right after chemotherapy was finished, I just started puking everywhere. To this day, I can't eat spaghetti with marinara because that's what I ate right before I just started puking. And I like look at it and I'm about to puke. So um, it was it hit me hard. It hit me really hard, nausea wise. Uh, and now they have tons of drugs that are really effective in terms of nausea, but it it doesn't do everything. Um, Zofran, I think, is what it is, and it's a miracle drug because, and they give it to you after anesthesia a lot too and things like that. But the, the side effects got worse and worse with each, every single, uh, round. So, uh, nausea was really bad the first day. And then I would feel tired the next few days. Obviously everything's dying, um, in my body. So, um, and then with the next round, my hemoglobin would be dropping even more. So I just, I just have nothing in me. Um, I just get so tired and at the same time, I was gaining all this weight from the monster dose of prednisone. I was on prednisone uh, 90 milligrams twice a day. So, and that's, a, I mean, most people don't realize how much that is, but that's a huge amount of prednisone. And not only does that make you retain water, so I was retaining a ton of weight and water weight, but I was ravenously hungry. And that's what steroids do to a lot of people is it just makes you buzz. And... um I remember housing like a Chipotle burrito and I'd just be like, all right, what else is next? <laughs> you know? And so I put on so much weight that way, but yeah, I couldn't help it. I literally couldn't help it is being so sedentary, um, doesn't help either because obviously your hemoglobin so low that it sucks. You can't even go out and do anything. Um, which is also why we're talking obviously, um, for the fitness aspect of things. But yeah, with each, with each round, all the side effects got worse and worse. I started to develop more and more side effects as it, as I went. The, uh, the stomach ulcers was horrible. Um, the, the bone pain was miserable. Uh, what I ended up doing 
for the nausea was I would just stop eating. Like the day that I would get the nine hours of chemotherapy, I just wouldn't eat and I would still puke, but it wasn't just continuous flow of puking. It kind of sucked because you're just puking bile, but it's better than just everything you ate that day. That was a big help actually was just not eating anything on the chemotherapy days, but so you put on 80 pounds over the course of yep. however many months. I mean, I don't I don't know the exact number, but I got up to 270 pounds and at that time I was probably 190 or so. Yeah, yeah, and if you if you see the pictures of of you at your heaviest there's a distinct difference <laughs> um compared to the lean yep. me and grilling machine. Yeah, that's right. So uh, what was that for like for you as as an 18-year-old? months prior thinking you're going to play college soccer um and sitting here 80 pounds or so overweight and it's 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 it was the hardest part of chemotherapy but or the hardest part of getting cancer is seeing everybody that you were allegedly friends with just just continue on with their life they're all going to college like you know how fun college is and everything and like you're literally just sitting there now you have to fight for your life because you have cancer and everybody else just goes on with their lives and you figure out who your best friends are real quick because there's a lot of people that just don't even like I haven't talked to since they since they left on and I thought I was great friends with them you know and um and that's such a tender age socially to have that happen you know and I remember visiting got friends of mine at Ohio State um during treatment and just the looks that you would get, like, what is this guy? Like, when you'd be around them uh, and their friends, you know? And it's so demoralizing. It's so hard. And it's honestly, uh, it's certainly shaped me into the type of person that I am now. Uh, obviously, you know my cynicism and my uh, <laughs> harsh reality uh, when it comes to human beings. But um, one of the saddest things is... During treatment, my father, uh, he writes about this and, and he, he, chron- uh, he chronologically went through like each day of, of my treatment and like would write about it uh, on our CaringBridge site. And there's one entry that he mentions that it's just so visible how angry and uh, sad and the happiness of life is just seeping away from me. And I'm still to this day trying to get it back. Um, Obviously, you know how I am. And I find happiness, but for now, like, it's it's so much easier for me to to dwell on the negative. And it's something that I'm trying to fix. Uh, In terms of in terms of my own life, like, obviously, everything that I'm doing with my foundation and and how I interact with other people, it's pure positivity. But um, just in terms of my own life, just finding happiness is, it's still affecting me. The cancer is still affecting me just because of what chemotherapy did to me socially and, and, and mentally. Um, just, uh, he, he specifically, and it's, 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 it's really tough for me to read because it's apparently visible to him. I never thought of it going through it. I was like, I wasn't like, man, I'm getting really angry in my life. But I was, I was, I mean, I, it's just, it changes your attitude on the world. I remember when I went to college, like I don't, I don't drink or do anything, any, any drugs or anything like that. Obviously it's a choice of mine for many reasons, but like, I remember going to college and it would, I would just be pissed off that all these people were getting hammered and wasting their life away when I, I shouldn't do that. I shouldn't do that. It, like to this point, I'm just like, oh, it's their life. They can do whatever they want with it. But back then I was so close to out of treatment. I would just be like, you don't even realize how precious your life is. Why, how could you be doing that? And I would get pissed off. And uh, I mean, I've come a long way, but there's still points to that, that I'm just like, hey, I'll see people doing stupid shit. And I'll be like, how are you doing that? You do realize what you're doing. And then I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, well, that's how they want to live their life. It's none of my business. But all I can do is uh, is be a good example and inspire and give hope to people that are in situations like I was, and that's that's what I'm trying to get out of it. So it's interesting because you're you're right; it is such a tender age to lose what you thought was a lot of close friends, and then 
I mean, something like chemo and going through that would mature you tenfold. So you have the mentality of someone in their mid-twenties going around exactly. 18 and 19-year-olds. And as you said, it, it it's not their fault. That's what, yeah. that's what 18 and 19-year-olds yeah, do. Exactly. But, but you still do have that mentality of, of you know, one, obviously, they've no idea what you went through and no idea how close you were. Um, but, you, you know, that's, that's, that's yeah. kids and, it, and it's hard exactly. to... That's the battle you seem to face. Yeah. And, and you're exactly right. Like, uh, it's, uh, and that's what I'm coming to terms with now is they are exactly what 18 and 19 year old kids should be doing. Well, not should be doing, but that's what they do. <laughs> do yeah. Um, and unfortunately for me, I was, you're exactly right. I had to mature. I found out what my priorities in life were, what my goals in life were, what was truly valuable to me at 17 and 18 years old. Most people, it takes 28 years plus to figure that out. And the problem with that is I was figuring all that out. I was maturing in that aspect way ahead of what I normally would have done, but I still had a mentality of a bitter cancer patient that's 18 years old. So, I mean, how do you work to it's almost like a chip on your shoulder. How yeah. do you how do you work to to get that off or to you know you said you've been working through it and yeah I think you're you're harder on on yourself than you think you are because you, <laughs> you want to be this tough dude and you're big softy. <laughs> um, how how have you been working to kind of you know realizing that people haven't gone through with you too and and it, it's not their fault that they don't understand. Yeah, uh, I mean it, a lot of it's been help from my family and people close to me. Um, a lot of people love me for who I am and accept me for who I am. And they just say, you know, that's Matt. Like, obviously, <laughs> obviously I like that. Um, and like you said, yes, people piss me off on a daily basis, hundred <laughs> times a day. But for the most part, I have a very kind heart and I want to help people. Uh, and I don't want to tell people that, but, uh, that's the reality. And, my family and those closest to me have really helped me figure that out. Um, and just being more open-minded and, and more accepting of people. I'm still incredibly judgmental and I need to fix that. <laughs> but, uh, like I'll, I'll meet somebody and I'll just be like, uh, Oh, you're wearing a plaid shirt. Sick. you you must shop at Abercrombie or something <laughs> like that, that quick of judgment. That's t typically what I do. And I need to figure I I need to fix that. But, uh, it's, it's just been people talking with me and like, obviously it was such an important, uh, molding time in my life that I was shaped so hard in that mindset that it's, it's taken me 10 years and I'm still working through it. So, uh, it's a work in progress. Hopefully I figure it out soon. <laughs> I, I mean, it's an important part because like we talked about before we went live, people don't realize the after effects. Mm-hmm. And people don't realize the long-term hit it takes on your mentality and psychology. And so it, it's a really important point you're making that you're still battling mm -hmm. something that you had. I mean, that's just ago. the mental aspects. I, ha I have uh, my my biggest side effects that I have right now is lung function. Uh, since the cancer had spread into my lungs, plus I got chemotherapy drugs that really damage lung and heart function. Uh, in addition to being radiated in the lungs, I have really impaired aerobic capacity. So uh, anaerobic is not bad. I, I do interval runs every day. I uh, treadmill runs, 30 seconds on, 30 off, that type of thing all the time. Um, but if you asked me to go run a 5K and try and do it at good pace, I'd be like, okay, I'll do it, but it'll take me about an hour and a half. Yeah. Like, it's it sucks. Um and lucky for me, I'm a goalkeeper. So, <laughs> so you don't have to yeah, use it. Exactly. So we'll get to some of the kind of later effects. Um, let's backtrack back to chemo. And yep. you actually had to be bribed to do <laughs> a third round. Is that no, 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 no. So I was originally scheduled for four rounds of chemotherapy. Right. I was cancer-free after two. And so I knew. I was like, all right, well, let's continue with the other two rounds of chemotherapy. And the way that they would do it is every two rounds of chemotherapy, so I was only scheduled for four, they did a CT scan and a PET scan, 
CT scan is obviously just imaging, and then PET scan is to show if there's live cancer, radioactive sugar they inject. And so after my second round, I got both of those done, um, and it showed that I was cancer-free. And I was like, yeah, you're damn right I was. <laughs> and then, uh, but I knew, I was like, I have two more rounds to go, and then I'm done. So I did two more rounds, and PET scan was still negative. CT scan, they said, well, the tumors in your chest didn't shrink as much as we'd like them to after the second two, uh, the next two rounds. So we want you to do two more rounds. And I was like, no, no, you don't. <laughs> so uh, what happens is obviously uh, you have cancerous lymph nodes and th throughout my entire body. And like I said, I had like huge ones in my mediastinal area. And when those die, they go into scar tissue. Like it's just like regular tissue. It's going to die, but it's going to leave some stuff behind. And the idea is there can still be living cancer within the scar tissue that you can't see on a PET scan. So they said, you know, we want them to shrink more. So you're going to do two more rounds. And I go, no, that's easy for you to say. I'm not, you're not the ones doing it. And I mean, I knew that I was cancer free. I know that there's no way of doing it, but I knew that I was cancer free. And I was like, there's no way I'm not, I'm not at this point, the chemotherapy was so miserable that I didn't want two more rounds. And my father, uh, said that I will buy you a car if you do these two more rounds. And originally I was like, no way, no way. Um, and he just kept begging me And what, what sold me on it, it wasn't the car. Uh, I knew just in the fear in my father's eyes that he didn't want to lose me. And that's why he, he just wanted me to do two more rounds. So to this day, the car was not worth it. Uh, <laughs> but I did it for my father and I did it for, uh, for his state of mind and his mental well being. And like I said, it, it, the car was not worth it because I did two more rounds, got CT scans again, tumors didn't shrink at all. Okay, so I basically did two more rounds of chemotherapy for damn shit. <laughs> um, and after those two, then I started 12 rounds of radiation treatment. So, um, and by that time, I was just knocked to shit. I was, I was ready to move on. To, yeah. And uh, radiation's easy. But what's funny is uh, chemotherapy still has, like I said, heart and lung function is a big one for one of the drugs that I got that's long-term side effects. But most of chemotherapy is very... Uh, short-term side effects and by short-term I, I mean like up to a couple years but radiation is severe long-term side effects uh, I'm already I've already come to terms that I'm probably gonna have to have my thyroid taken out eventually heart and lung function definitely for for radiation treatment skin issues things like that that you know are gonna happen but uh, radiation is really just the all right we killed the cancer now let's knock the shit out of it. Even if it's not there, we're going to make sure. So, uh, I had 12 rounds of that. And the way that happened is it basically took three weeks total. I would go in for four, uh, four straight days, uh, Monday through Thursday weekends off. And then I'd go in the next day and do the same thing. You just lie on a big table. Um, and it's almost like getting a full body x-ray. You just lie on a table and then x-ray you uh, now I did, they make, um, these giant lead blocks that are personalized and formed to your body. So for me in particular, without, I had nothing in my kidneys, so they would, so that my kidneys wouldn't get destroyed from the radiation. There's like little, oh, and my liver too. There's like big blocks in the, and they would prevent the radiation from hitting my liver and, and, uh, things like that. So, um, there's tons of those all over the, all over the radiation room and you have yours and they slide them in, but, um, no real side effects from that other than I would get a sore throat, um, just from obviously that sensitive tissue in the, the, the throat and it would feel like I was sunburned all the time. Uh, and I do still have seven tattoos, not as many as you, but I do have, <laughs> I had to be radiated because like the long-term side effects, like I described, uh, they tattoo you in order to know where you've been radiated the rest of your life. So it's a lot more refined now in that yes. it's a lot more targeted in where do you radiate back then? It was probably a more, it was the whole chest broad, wall. very broad. Yeah. 
I, I'm, I'm much more in tune of the chemotherapy nowadays than I am radiation treatment nowadays. I have, I have no clue how, I know that it's very pinpointed, but, um, and I know they even do like radiation seeding that they like put in radiation seeds near the tumors and it just, I mean, that's crazy. Yeah. And, and it speaks to your going on 10 years and, and right. the advances yeah. in just that amount of time. Uh, you know, we talk a lot in, in the exercise oncology world, world of, of the frustrations of, of progress, but mm-hmm. we're getting there. It's just, it's a slow process. You know what well, I mean? It's but even, crazy. It's crazy in 10 years, how far they've come. Yeah. So there's so many developments in your field that you have to adjust for, um, and can work with. And that's one of the things for us. Uh, so we'll figure out how exercise responds to chemo or say androgen deprivation therapy mm-hmm. for prostate cancer. And then they'll develop a new form of chemo or they'll develop, uh, so they just started to combine ADT and chemo for mm-hmm. prostate cancer. So now you got to go, well, we kind of had a handle on what happened with ADT and exercise. Now we have to see what happens with ADT and chemo and exercise. Yeah. And uh, it's just a cat and mouse chase. As, as the medicine advances, we've got to yeah. try and, and catch it with, with our exercise trials. You and I both know 20 years ago, this conversation wouldn't even be having... <laughs> no. You know what I mean, and and we'll talk about your your foundation in, in a little bit that focuses on that. But so that would have been what three or four min- months of chemo and radiation. Total, it was about eight or nine months, something like that. Wow. So because the the chemo took about six or seven months, and then I think I had a little bit of time off between the end of chemo to radiation, and then like I said, three weeks of radiation treatment. Might have had a week off in between, so it might have been four weeks. But, yeah, it was a long process. So what was it like? What What was that final day where they're like, you're good to go, don't need to come back? I was like, good riddance. <laughs> not, com- not coming back here. And then I'd be like, oh, wait, no, I have to have a blood test like every month now, so I'll see you guys in a month. <laughs> I thought it was so cool. Like, yeah, see you guys later, no, not. And then, all right, I'll see you in 30 days. I actually am due. I have to go back pretty soon. Because uh, I get yearly yearly blood work done right. nowadays and EKGs, echocardiograms. So what that would have been kind of fall ish, uh, and you're you're taking your your yeah. Cut. So I actually I finished all of my treatment. Yeah, it was like November or something, because uh, I went on a cruise with my family in December, and we had my club soccer starting up in the spring in like March. Right. So I had December, January, February, and then I had about four months to get into shape to try and play soccer competitively. So let's talk about that then. You yeah. you're, you went from not playing for Northern Illinois yeah. to walking on to OSU. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you come back from your cruise and you're getting ready to rock. Uh, how did your training look like in the spring in terms of you know, just getting ready mentally and physically. Well, so the thing is, is I wasn't going to NIU until the following year. Yeah. Uh, so what I was able to do was play with my club team, Columbus Crew Academy, uh, for that spring season. So right when I was done, I mean, I was I was trying to play soccer and things during treatment. But as you know, with a hemoglobin of like seven – I literally would jog for five minutes and damn near have a heart attack because I had nothing. So I just got out there because I wanted to play the game, like the game that I love, you know, and um, I got out there as much as I could. But once I was done, I was like, all right, now I need to kick it up. I want if I want to play soccer again, I got to figure it out. And um, I would go. This is when I got into strength training, because obviously most people know that in order to lose weight, you got to do a lot of running. You got to at least cardio. Um, but the problem with me, with my blood cell count is you need to run to lose weight, but you don't have enough red blood cells to run. So you can't run to lose weight. So that's when I got into strength training is obviously it's very demanding, but your strength training is not as, uh, as blood dependent as it is like i mean you you hold your breath and you do eight reps and you're done you get to rest um and so i started weight training like three days a week monday wednesday friday with a sports specific guy and the patience that he had was unbelievable because you know he could tell that i was a very talented athlete that wanted to get back on the field but 
had massive disadvantages. Um, and it was just a steady, steady process, just really slow progress that mentally was one of the most demanding things that I've done in my entire life, just because of where I wanted to be and how long and how frustrating it was to get there. Because, uh, I would, I would try and do something that I'm like, Oh, if I need to play soccer, I need to be able to run this shuttle run. And then I'd be halfway through the shuttle run and I'd be like, I can't do this. So, um, like I said, strength training was huge for me to get, to start losing weight and regain my muscle mass because obviously I atrophied a ton from, from latency. And, uh, I started to do more, uh, anaerobic fitness because that's how I was able to recover. It still sucked, but, um, I was doing a lot more anaerobic fitness, uh, speed agility training. And it took me about three months to lose enough weight that I was able to actually like be athletic again. And I remember going to my first, uh, Academy program practice in March and literally just doing a goalkeeper warmup, which as you know, isn't like a, an, a, an exhausting thing. And I had to lay down and I was like, holy shit, I'm going to pass out. <laughs> so March and April, I was still recovering. Like I would go to practice, but I just wasn't fit enough. I would, I would keep going, keep going, keep going. And eventually, um, I felt well enough that I was able to perform in games. Um, obviously I still had skill, but it just took so long for my body to recover. And by May, I took over as a starter for my Academy team and I was playing in the Academy cup finals in June. How did I feel? It, it, to this day, it's it's one of my most memorable and favorite soccer memories just because of how well we did as a team. First ever Academy Finals. Uh, I can't remember what year it was. Maybe 2009, something like Or 2006. No, that's way... 2008, 2008. So, um, for the Columbus Crew, first ever Academy Finals. And I played extremely well. Um, and... I mean, we didn't even lose a game. We we were we were wonderful, um, and all of the work that I had done to get back to that point was coming to fruition, and it was uh, very surreal. So it's to this day one of my most memorable over over my first professional start, over my first shutout, everything like that. Um, that is way up there, and so after that, I just kept training in the summer. Um, getting ready to go to NIU. I went to NIU uh, for the fall semester, and I could not pass the fitness test that they required in order to even, like, dress for games. What was the fitness test? It was, it was like, 15 different goalkeeper. Now, they had field player and goalkeeper fitness tests, but the goalkeeper one was, like, uh, it was all repetition based, but you had like 15 different exercises with a minute rest in between. And so it'd be like, oh, you have to touch each post 20 times in a minute. And then you have a minute rest and then you got to go do the next drill and you got to save six of these balls in 30 seconds. And then we'll go rest. It wasn't that I couldn't play. It was not that I couldn't play because I was, I was obviously good, but my aerobic, aerobic uh, fitness was horrid. And I even told them that coming in. I was like, listen, I'm less than a year out of treatment and you expect my lung function and my heart function to be perfect. I, that was incredibly draining on me because I would see every single day how much better I was than the other goalkeepers there. But because I couldn't pass their fitness test, I wasn't allowed to even dress. So I'd be like schlepping water everywhere and not even dressing for the games. And halfway through the season, I that's when I developed the uh, intestinal ulcers and I just dropped weight, which actually in the grand scheme of things was helpful because it made me lose like 30 pounds, but <laughs> without even trying. New but, weight loss fat. Yeah, but, but the, the problem was obviously when you don't eat, your muscles just atrophy real bad. Um, so I dropped like 170 pounds. So I went from 270 to around 220, when I, and I, that's what I was playing weight obviously it's not my goal playing weight but 220 
And then I lost like 40 pounds just from not eating. So in less than a year, I lost like 100 pounds. It's crazy. I mean, I have stretch marks from gaining all the weight and then losing it. So midway through the year, I was like, I mean, I'm not happy here anyway. I'm having all these issues. I, I need to go back closer to Nationwide Children's where I got treated uh, so that I can figure out all these side effects. And so I contacted John Bloom at, at Ohio State, and I was like, I'd love to come play for you guys. I don't need money. And he said, that's great. We could use a fourth goalkeeper. And I, at that time, I was like, oh, that's awesome. I'll come in and I'll just work my ass off. I didn't expect anything because obviously, I mean, I wasn't even recruited high, highly in high school, but I didn't expect anything. But I came in in the winter. So I transferred after one semester from NIU to Ohio State. Um, and I came in the winter and just killed it. Like, And when I saw that, I was like, maybe I can play here. Like, I thought the level would be huge difference and that I wouldn't be able to compete. But I was like, wow, I, I can do this. And I took over as the day one starter as a redshirt freshman at Ohio State. And that's my freshman year at Ohio State. I really cranked up the fitness, particularly weight training. Um, but it really has benefited my game in terms of just uh, power, uh, explosiveness, how I play the goalkeeper position now. And I think that's a huge reason why I am where I am now is just weight training in general. And it set me apart. It set me apart. I was a big guy in general, but I put on probably about, I mean, I, I was playing at around 200 pounds. I'm more than that now, but I was playing at about 200 pounds and it was a huge difference, huge difference. And it was all, it was all just Olympic weight training and, uh, squats and, and clean snatch everything explosive movement uh posterior chain stuff um and i mean i i did upper body but i mean to this day i'm not really concerned about it um i mean i i need to do it for the chicks but <laughs> but uh but i i still focus big time on posterior chain stability strength um and explosive power and so right now i played around 205 um with around seven or eight percent body fat and that's where i try to hover so that's it for part one of my talk with Matt. As you can tell, just a really tough dude who, who has been through a lot and it's just great to hear his story. As I said, part two will focus more on his journey from Ohio State to becoming a professional soccer player, along with a lot of the battles he still faces and struggles he faces from the side effects of treatment and, and what he's going, got going on. We'll also focus on some of the really cool initiatives he's got going on up in Chicago, particularly with the children's, uh, Chicago's Children's Hospital and uh, what he's doing for childhood cancer survivors. Just great stuff. So stay tuned for that episode in a few weeks here. And listen, thanks a lot for tuning in, folks, and we'll see you soon.